You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 79 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach at MGM Hotels and Resorts. We have news that four Hampshire councils have had to make changes to their websites after a BBC probe. We have the results of a GDPR survey carried out by Gibson and Associates Solicitors, which looks at GDPR from a consumer's perspective and gives us some useful insight into how much awareness consumers actually appear to have of GDPR and what their rights are. We then have an update on Google moving UK user data to servers in the USA and what that means in GDPR terms. We then have news that EU Commissioner Marguerite Vestager has said that in her opinion, facial recognition breaches GDPR. We then have a thought-provoking piece on software development and where your software developer sits. Are they a data controller? Are they a joint data controller? Are they a data processor? Or are they neither under GDPR? Well, we give you some food for thought on that, hopefully, in that article, and you can have a listen to that in this week's episode. Then we take a look at lessons that can be learned from the case of Doorstep Dispensary and their data breach, which ended up costing them £275,000. And finally, we have news of a security flaw in a popular GDPR WordPress plugin, which requires rectification as soon as possible if you use that plugin on your website. So, as always, quite a varied bunch of articles for you this week. I hope you find them informative, hope you find them useful and entertaining. And as always, if you have any feedback on the show, please do drop us an email to podcast at That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y dot co.uk. We do read all the feedback that we receive. Unfortunately, we don't have time to reply to each piece of feedback individually, but please be sure we do read them. And wherever possible, we do incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. So please do keep the feedback coming. We really do appreciate it. Check us out on Facebook. We start with news that MGM Resorts International, the casino and hotel giant, acknowledged on Wednesday this week they had been the victim of a data breach sometime last year. MGM would not confirm the number of customers affected, but it's believed that up to 10.6 million people could have been affected by this data breach. It's understood that the breach resulted in several high-profile guests of MGM properties having their email addresses, phone numbers and physical addresses exposed, including one guest with the same name as Jack Dorsey, Twitter's chief executive. Twitter declined to comment on whether this was the one and same person, and whether Mr Dorsey had stayed at the MGM hotel. MGM Resorts said the vast majority of those affected had phone book information breached, such as name, phone number and address. It said about 1,300 individuals had had more sensitive data breached, which ranged from driver licence numbers, passport numbers or military ID card numbers. A spokesman for MGM Resorts said last summer we discovered unauthorised access to a cloud server that contained a limited amount of information for certain previous guests of MGM Resorts. We are confident that no financial, payment card or password data was involved in this matter. MGM Resorts says it has promptly notified guests potentially affected by the breach in accordance with law. MGM did not disclose who had breached the data, 
but said it had worked with law enforcement to investigate. The company also hired two cyber security firms to investigate, review and help fix the data breach. A spokesman for MGM Resorts said, At MGM Resorts, we take our responsibility to protect guest data very seriously and we have strengthened and enhanced the security of our network to prevent this from happening again. MGM Resorts publicly acknowledged the breach after ZDNet, a technology news website, published a report on Wednesday detailing how the personal information of guests had been posted on a hacking forum. Given the popularity of the MGM Hotel, particularly around Las Vegas, it's likely that a number of guests from European countries will have been affected, European countries including the UK. We have contacted the ICO for a comment and the ICO said that they were aware of the data breach but had not been asked to investigate further at this stage. As and when we get further information on this data breach at MGM Hotels, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A number of councils in Hampshire had to make revisions to their websites this week after an investigation by the BBC. The council's websites were found to have policies which breached UK and EU data law in respect of third-party content and particularly cookies, and so very much falling foul of the privacy directive, which we've mentioned a number of times on the GDPR Weekly Show, because although it's not part of GDPR, it very much runs alongside GDPR. The BBC investigated websites belonging to Portsmouth City Council, Haven't Borough Council, Hampshire County Council and East Hampshire District Council in October last year. They were looking to see whether the websites were compliant with the laws regarding cookies, cookies being small text files which are placed on your computer every time you visit a website and typically are used to track users to follow where they go in the website, what they look at and therefore allow the website to present them with targeted advertising. While the law says cookies for advertising can only be displayed if users explicitly accept them, the BBC's found that on all four websites at the time, consent was not explicitly requested, but was assumed. This puts them at odds with the advice from the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. The BBC investigation found that these advertising cookies led to adverts displaying high-interest credit cards, Black Friday deals and sports cars on the benefit pages of some of the local authority websites, but these were not found on sites for the four local councils. A spokesman for Portsmouth City Council said it does not carry online adverts and that it only uses Google cookies to improve its website for users. The spokesman said, Our use of Google Analytics is explicitly referenced in our cookie and privacy policy on the website itself, and a related pop-up asks users of the site to agree to this before any cookies are used, so consent is not assumed, the spokesman said. However, the BBC investigation highlighted to us that Google had also been using part of the analytics tool to collect information. It is this element of analytics that is referred to in the BBC report as advertising cookies, and we switched this off as soon as we became aware of it. Advertising cookies are also used on the Haven't Borough Council and East Hampshire District Council websites, but only if a user takes to accept them, a spokesman said. The spokesman added, We do not allow advertising for gambling, alcohol, credit cards, payday loans, politics or adult themes. We currently use other cookies on the council website, predominantly to ensure good user experience. 
and we're working to ensure we're compliant with regulations. Hampshire County Council, for its part, said it had now introduced a compliant consent solution to match ICO regulations on explicit consent for cookies. A Hampshire County Council spokesman said, We use cookies on our site to enhance the user experience, personalise content and advertisements, provide social media features and analyse our website traffic. Hampshire County Council has a published statement of all the cookies used on our public website at hans.gov.uk forward slash about the council forward slash privacy forward slash cookie hyphen policy. The spokesman went on to say within this statement, and for the purposes of communication and marketing, we are clear that we use both Facebook and Google cookies. These are used to market our choose-to-use services, e.g. country parks and libraries, and to enable us to deliver public information campaigns such as those relating to public house and consultations. The BBC said it had passed on the results of its inquiry to the ICO, and that the ICO had vowed to look into its findings. If we get any update on this from either the ICO or any of the four councils involved, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A survey by Dublin-based solicitors Gibsons and Associates has found that while general knowledge of GDPR is good, amongst the general public, fewer people are aware of their right to take legal action as a result of a data breach. Some of the key results to come out of the survey were that 28% of people understood what personal data organisations could keep on them, 15% thought organisations couldn't keep any data on them, 26% knew what companies could do with their personal data. 14% said they didn't think they would do anything with the information even if they had it. And 62% of people still don't trust companies to use their data responsibly. And fewer than 50% of people asked knew what a subject access request is. In addition to these findings, the survey also revealed that 20% of respondents had themselves fallen victim to a data breach. Of those who said they had been a victim of a data breach, only 7% had gone on to make a legal claim. When asked why they didn't make a claim, 37% said they were not aware they could make a claim, while 24% said they didn't think it was big enough to worry about. Reza Nazem, data protection solicitor at Gibson Associates Solicitors, said, Any organisation that collects personal data has a legal duty of care to make sure it's protected. Anyone who has their data leaked due to the irresponsibility of a company is vulnerable to suffering financial losses. Regardless of how big or small these losses are, companies should be held accountable for their mistreatment of this very often sensitive data, which is why victims have the legal right to make a claim. So despite 80% of participants in the survey knowing what GDPR was, respondents showed gaps in knowledge when asked about the guidelines. Only 28% understood what personal data could be legally kept by an organisation, while 15% wrongly thought that companies were not able to keep any personal data at all. There's also a significant lack of knowledge about what companies can legally do with personal data, with only 26% answering correctly in the survey. So to be clear, organisations may use personal information for the following purposes. They may use it to provide a service, to make a recommendation, to decide what you see online, to directly sell to you, or indeed, finding they've got consent, they can sell your data to third parties. Some 14% of people in the survey incorrectly said that companies were not able to do any of the above now that GDPR was in place. So when we come to the whole issue of subject access requests, 55% of UK and Irish residents questioned in the survey did not know what a subject access request was, 
even though 62% of people in the survey didn't trust companies to use their data responsibly. So a data subject access request, in case you know anyone listening is not aware, is the ability of a data subject to request from a company or organisation all the information that that company or, inf- or organisation holds on that person. And examples of the sort of data could be the person's name, their date of birth, their address or their mobile phone number, their telephone number, their uh, online identifier such as an IP address or email address, the job they do, their racial or ethnic origin, any identification numbers such as maybe a passport number or driving licence number, what items you view or buy online, your bank details, your credit card details, the school you went to, information about your health, biometric data such as photos and fingerprints, details about your partner or your family, any trade union membership, your religious or philosophical beliefs, your political opinions, your passwords, or even details of your sex life and sexuality. All of these things are things which companies can hold, providing they let you know that they're holding them. And so a data subject access request gives you the ability to request that information from any organisation that may be holding data on you. And the organisation then has 30 days to supply that information, or they can exceptionally ask for an additional period of time, but they need to demonstrate why they need that extra time. And they can only really do that if they can argue that the extra time is because your particular request is particularly complex. So some interesting results there from a survey from a different perspective, because we've seen lots of surveys that look at things from a business perspective. But it's interesting to see this survey from Gibbs and Associates, which is actually looking at things from the consumer perspective. And it shows that there is still a huge gap in public knowledge to be filled and so I think it's for all of us who are in the GDPR community to work to make sure not only that we're helping our clients, our organisations, our companies to deal with GDPR but also ensuring that we help with the public education message to let the public know what their rights are under GDPR. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden. The Guardian newspaper rather set the hairs running this week with a story about the fact that Google was moving the data it holds for UK users away from the EU to its servers in the US. They built on this and then said that basically now that we're not part of the EU that we had no protection against Google doing this or no protection over Google's data. Well, frankly... Of course, that is rubbish. Um, During the implementation period of the uh, Brexit, then everything remains as it is now. So certainly until the end of this year, all the rights that we have under GDPR remain exactly the same as they did prior to the 31st of January. And so any UK citizen can make a data subject access request of Google. Google has to maintain the data in accordance with GDPR and should they not do so, then they can be penalised by the Irish ICO. It would be in in this case because that's where Google have their main European headquarters. But those rights to be punished remain exactly the same if they breach anything to do with GDPR. Nothing changes. What happens after the end of this year? Well, as far as we know at the moment... Things will carry on much as they are now. GDPR will become UK GDPR and providing a suitable trade agreement is negotiated with the European Union and at the moment we have to assume that it will be, then 
everything will just continue exactly as it does now. So it's a complete non-story at the moment. I think it's a case of trying to get people worried where there really is no need to be worried because the absolute fallback from the current situation would be that we would apply the rules in the UK Data Protection Act 2018, which pretty well mirrors what's in GDPR, certainly as far as the average person in the street is concerned. And so there really is no need to be concerned at the moment. So someone says to you, what's going to happen to our data after the end of 2018, uh, 2020? Just say uh, nothing, you know, it will carry on as it is now, because there's absolutely no reason to believe that, that won't be the case. Should that situation change, we will, of course, be amongst first to update you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. But I really, at this stage, can see no sign on the horizon that anything is going to change. I hope that helps. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. EU Data Commissioner Margrethe Vestager believes that facial recognition in the EU requires specific consent. Marguerite, who is the EU's Digital and Competition Chief, has said that automated facial recognition breaches GDPR as the technology fails to meet the regulation's requirement for consent. Speaking in a press conference, she said, as it stands right now, GDPR would say, don't use it because you cannot get consent. The thinking behind this is that GDPR classes information on the person's facial features as biometric data, which, within GDPR, is labelled as sensitive personal data. The use of such data is highly restricted and typically requires consent from the subject unless the processing meets a range of exceptional circumstances. Now, one of those exceptional circumstances is it being necessary for public security, and this has led the UK's data regulator, the ICO, to allow the police to use facial recognition CCTV as it met the threshold of strict necessity for law enforcement purposes. It should be noted, however, that the trial so far has not been a great success and it's failed to identify a single known criminal in its testing within the current testing environment. However, back to the case of what's happening with Europe. Vesta told reporters that the Commission will further investigate automated facial recognition before introducing legislation, allowing member states to make their own domestic decisions in the meantime. So what we will say in the paper, in a very lawyered-up language, is let's pause and figure out if there are any situations, and if there are any, under what circumstances, facial recognition remotely should be authorised, she said. Her comments reflect the EU's recent cancellation of plans to introduce a five-year moratorium on facial recognition technology. So, doubtless this one will come back later in 2020, and whenever we have an update, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. There is always much discussion in GDPR about when an organisation is a data controller, when they're a data processor, when they're a sub-processor, when they are none of the above. So can you really be none of the above? Well, let's take an example that's been put forward by the ICO themselves. A mail delivery service is contracted by a local hospital to deliver envelopes containing patients' medical records to other health service institutions. 
So let's look at this for a moment. The delivery service is in physical possession of the envelopes, but may not open them to access any of the personal data or other content they contain. The delivery service will not process the personal data in the envelopes and packages it handles. It is in possession of the envelopes and packages, but as it cannot access their content, it cannot be said to be processing. There's even an argument to say it's not, they're not even holding the data, but they're certainly not processing the data. Indeed, the delivery service will have no idea as to whether the items they deliver contain personal data or simply other information. This means that regarding the content of the envelopes and packages it delivers, the delivery service is neither a controller in its own right, nor a processor for the clients that use its services, who are the data controllers, even though it's handling personal data, potentially, because remembering that paper documents are just as much part of personal data under GDPR as electronic records are. But the key here is that the delivery company, the delivery service, has no physical access to those documents unless it breaks the seal on the envelope or the box or whatever. So this means in this instance, the delivery company is not a data controller, nor are they a data processor. They're a non-entity as far as GDPR are concerned because the delivery company does not exercise any control over the purpose for which the personal data enclosed in the items of mail entrusted to it is used. It has no control over the content of the data entrusted to it. It has no instructions from the controller to process the data inside the envelopes and packages. However, there is an exception to this because the delivery service will be a data controller of the name and address information on the envelope itself, i.e. who they have to deliver the envelope to. So the question is, what if this hospital provides a delivery company with open envelopes but enter into a, into a data processing agreement with the provider to protect the disclosed data? Will this data processing agreement be sufficient to protect the patient's medical records? The obvious answer to that is no. So if that's the case when we're thinking about paper documents, then why do we so readily and I include, when I say we, I include most organisations in this, so readily give software developers access to real-life personal data instead of closing the envelope. Wouldn't it be much simpler if we just anonymised all the data, made up random data, if you like, that's being used for testing with software developers, so that software developers can't then be either a data controller or a data processor because they're not having any access to the original data. So again, they are a non-entity as far as GDPR is concerned. It, it simplifies the whole matter down. So I guess what I'm trying to say in this piece really is that if you use a outside software house to develop your applications for you or your systems processing for you, try and avoid giving them real-life data. Try and make sure the data you give them is, is totally fictitious or is anonymised to such a degree that an individual can't be identified. Because then you remove much of the need or much of the concern of that software company having any requirement under GDPR to declare themselves either as a data processor or a data controller for the data that you're giving them to work with. So let's turn that a little bit further and let's say we're carrying out a data privacy impact assessment. You know, we're looking to introduce a new software and we're talking to the software developers and we're running a data privacy impact assessment to see what the risk to real life data is. So let's put the legitimate interest assessment test, the three part test to this. First is the purpose. 
The interest of the date controller to develop and modify software is real and present. It corresponds with current activities or benefits that are expected in the very near future. So that one's true. It passes the purpose test. The necessity test. The disclosure of personal data to the supplier is necessary for the development and modification of software. Such as disclosure is less intrusive of the rights of individuals compared to the other options for achieving the same goal. This has to be false, surely. We could give them anonymous data and therefore we don't have to give them real data. If we give them real data and we don't have a data processor data control agreement with them, then we're actually processing the data unlawfully. And thirdly, there's a balancing test. There's a balance between the controller's purpose on one hand and the impact on the rights of the data subject on the other. The organisation's interests override the individual's. That too is false. So out of the three tests here, two have failed. So it's got to make sense if you don't want to have a problem with a data privacy impact assessment to ensure that when you're giving data to your software developers, you've anonymised that data or made the data fictitious as much as you possibly can. So I hope that helps. We will return to that subject because it can get quite complex. So we will return further to it in future episodes of the DPL Weekly Show. But I just wanted to throw that example out there to you to make you think about what you need to do when you're working with software developers. And hopefully, as I say, that's been helpful to you. Do let me know. If you have any feedback at all on anything that we discussed in the DPL Weekly Show, then please drop us an email to podcasts at insurety.co.uk that's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Back in episode 71 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we told you about a data breach at Doorstep Dispensary Limited, a London pharmacy which supplies medicines to customers and care homes and that the ICO had fined them £275,000. So we thought it was worth having a little bit of a deeper look at uh, this case and see what lessons can be learned from it. So a bit of background. Uh, Doorstep Dispensary Limited are a provider of pharmaceutical services to care homes in the UK. On the 24th of July 2018, approximately half a million documents were found in unlocked containers at the back of their premises in Edgware, by the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MHRA, who were at the premises to conduct their own investigation into the alleged unlicensed and unregulated storage and distribution of medicines by doorstep dispensary. The MHRA notified the ICO of its discovery of documents on the 31st of July 2018. The dates of documents in question range from January 2016 to June 2018, and contained personal data including the names, addresses, dates of birth, NHS numbers, medical information and prescription information of doorstep dispensaries customers. None of the documents found were marked as confidential waste and they were not securely stored. So in their investigation, the ICO were concerned that personal data had been processed insecurely and in contravention of GDPR. Accordingly, on the 15th of August 2018, the ICO wrote to doorstep dispensary requesting information regarding its compliance with GDPR. The ICO's Pennington notice stated that doorstep dispensary initially seemed to deny any knowledge of the matter and did not respond adequately to the ICO's questions. As a result, on the 25th of October 2018, the ICO issued an information notice. Doorstep dispensary appealed the information notice, but this was dismissed by the First Tier Tribunal of Information Rights on the 28th of January 2019. Doorstep Dispensary has declined to provide information that might expose it to prosecution in the MHRA's existing criminal proceedings, 
but provided a number of its data handling procedures and guideline documents to the ICO. The ICO found, amongst other things, that most of doorstep dispensaries' policies and guidelines had not been updated since April 2015, so well before GDPR came into effect in the UK, and therefore they weren't in compliance with GDPR. The policy documents provided to staff were also found to be vague in practical advice, and the few documents which did make any reference at all to GDPR were simply templates from the National Pharmacy Association, a pharmacist trade organisation, which had not been incorporated by doorstep dispensary. So in its penalty notice, the ICO found that doorstep dispensary was in contravention of several provisions of GDPR. Although doorstep dispensary alleged that any penalty should be issued against Judy Pharma Limited, a licensed waste disposal company operating under contract with doorstep dispensary, the ICO concluded that Judy was a data processor and on the instructions of the doorstep dispensary as the data controller, and had simply been carrying out data processing on doorstep dispensary's behalf. So, what particular articles of GDPR are under consideration here? Well, the first one is Article 5, Paragraph 1F, the confidentiality and integrity of personal data. The ICO considered that doorstep dispensary had infringed Article 5, 1F in the following ways. It had not implemented technological measures such as a secure storage or physical shredding of data, which gave rise to a risk to unauthorised access. It had not implemented organisational measures such as adequate data protection policies. And there was an unacceptable risk of the accidental loss or destruction of data because of the way it was stored. This was highlighted by the ingress of water into some of the documents. They also looked at Article 24, Paragraph 1, Risk Assessment of GDPR. For the same reasons as they gave for Article 5, 1F, the ICO decided doorstep dispensary was in breach of Article 24, Paragraph 1. The volume and sensitivity of the data gave rise to a high risk to the rights and freedoms of the data subjects, warranting significantly more stringent data security measures than doorstep dispensary had applied. They also looked at Article 32, Paragraph 1, Security and Processing. Doorstep had infringed Article 32, Paragraph 1, because despite the high-level risk to the data subjects, doorstep dispensary did not adopt appropriate and cost-effective measures, such as the threading with a cross-cut threader and secure storage of the threaded data. Articles 13 and 14 were also considered the information to be provided. The privacy notice provided by doorstep dispensary to the ICO did not contain all the information required by Articles 13 and 14 of GDPR. So when it came to deciding the penalty, the... ICO had to consider how serious the contraventions of GDPR by doorstep dispensary were with regard to factors under Article 83, Paragraph 1 of GDPR. Some of the relevant considerations to come out of the ICO are as follows. 1. The nature of the breach. In the case of doorstep dispensary, the fact the data was held was extra sensitive because it was medical data and contained special category data meant that it was particularly important for doorstep dispensary to have taken its data protection obligations more seriously. The Commissioner considered that the breach, and I quote, resulted from a highly culpable degree of negligence on the part of the doorstep dispensary. Additionally, because of the sensitivity of the data, the ICO held that it was particularly important to ensure that data subjects were provided with the information required under Articles 13 and 14 of GDPR, but doorstep dispensary did not meet its regulatory obligations in this respect. And in this regard, it's worth noting that the ICO later held that these infringements were, and again I quote, a case of negligent rather than deliberate infringement. 
So then let's look at the gravity of the breach. The ICO considered the breach to be very serious because A. It concerned highly sensitive information which was left unsecured in a cavalier fashion. B. It was possible to readily identify the data subjects' names and health data. C. There were significant shortcomings in information provided to data subjects through doorstep dispensary's privacy policy. The data subjects had a right to know what doorstep dispensary was doing with their data, but were not told anything in near enough detail, especially given the sensitive nature of the data. And D. No data subject could reasonably expect that their personal data, including their health data, would be handled in the manner it was by doorstep dispensary. In terms of the duration of the breach, the ICO was unable to determine exactly how long the breach had occurred, but was satisfied that doorstep dispensary had been in breach of GDPR since at least 25th of May 2018, the date which GDPR came into force. In terms of the number of data subjects affected, the ICO could not determine how many there were with any degree of accuracy, as there were approximately half a million documents that had been discovered. Given the volume of the documentation and the size of doorstep dispensary's business, it made it likely that the number of data subjects affected was in the hundreds, if not the thousands. So what are the damage suffered by data subjects when the ICO acknowledged the steps that doorstep dispensary is now taking to improve its written policies, its contractual arrangements and level of training, and took this into account when determining the appropriate amount of the penalty? It was found, however, that it was a major failing by doorstep dispensary as a data controller that routinely processed large quantities of highly sensitive health data do not have in place the appropriate measures required under Articles 25 and 32 of GDPR. Accordingly, the ICO held that Doorstep Dispensary bore full responsibility for these infringements and for the shortcomings of its privacy notice. And the final thing that it took into consideration was its degree of cooperation with the ICO. The ICO described Doorstep Dispensary's level of cooperation as poor due to multiple follow-up emails which were required to achieve any response to its inquiries. So, what should we learn from this? Well, the first is that changes made after an investigation do not affect the ICO's assessment when it's looking at how severe a breach is. Changes to data handling policies and procedures after an investigation has commenced are unlikely to sway the ICO in its assessment of how serious defective practices were prior to the breach taking place. But, such changes may, however, mitigate against any level of fine to be imposed. The second thing, and this is something which we emphasise time and time again to our customers and potential customers when we're training them, is that organisations should keep their data handling policies and procedures up to date. In assessing the severity of the breach and whether to award a fine, the ICO placed emphasis on the fact that doorstep dispensaries breach had been ongoing since at least the implementation of GDPR. In determining this, the fact that doorstep dispensaries' data handling policies and procedures were mostly dated from April 2015 was significant. Therefore, If you have policies which you're still using, which were written prior to the 25th of May 2018, then it's damn well time to get them rewritten. I can't emphasise that strongly enough. It really, really is important that your procedures are GDPR compliant. We would love to help you get your procedures to be GDPR compliant, so if you'd like us to help you, please get in touch with us via podcasts at insurity.co.uk and one of our specialists will start work with you as very soon as we can to get your procedures into place and get them up to date because that really has been proved by this judgment to be crucial. The third thing that we learned from this ruling is that controllers cannot simply subcontract their obligations under GDPR. The presence of a subcontractor does not absolve the data controller of its responsibilities and obligations under GDPR. Doorstep dispensary as a data controller is required to ensure the security of any processing undertaken by it 
or on its behalf by subcontractors, and that's important. So, you know, it's a bit like if you have some household rubbish and you give it to somebody who says, oh yeah, we'll dispose of this properly, and then they dump it at the roadside. Well, that fly tipping, if there is a penalty to be applied, will still come back to you as the householder. Doesn't matter. You paid somebody to dispose of it, that's your problem. You will still be the one who ends up being fined. And the same is true here. Take care with your processors, your data processors, because you can have whatever agreement you want with them, but the ICO will still come back to you as their controller and say, hey, chum, it's up to you to make sure that your data processor is behaving in the right way. And again, that's an area where we can help if you'd like us to look into your data processors and make sure they are working within GDPR then we'd be delighted to do that. So again, if you would like us to do that, please drop us an email to podcast.insurability.co.uk and again, we will work on it as soon as we can for you. We knew already that the ICO would want special category data to be treated more securely and I think this judgment holds that up. And the other thing is that organisations should comply effectively with the ICO. In several parts of the ICO's report, they've noted the poor level of cooperation that doorstep dispensary gave them. And so again, that's where we can help. If you are unfortunate enough to be investigated by the ICO, do get in touch with us. We can help you and the ICO make that a much smoother process. And finally, and again, this is something we emphasise in our training, GDPR doesn't just focus on electronic data. Paper data matters just as much. So while cybersecurity is important, Make sure your security measures and your document disposal measures are also GDPR compliant. It really is important. We will come back to all these issues, I'm sure, in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, but I thought it was important to see the lessons that we could learn from this case with Doorstep Dispensary. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If any of you are WordPress users and a warning that a flaw has been found in a popular WordPress plugin used for GDPR. The General Data Protection GDPR compliance plugin allows users to easily ensure that users accepted cookies when visiting your website and has the option to allow or disallow the information to be supplied to third parties. However, an error within the plugin means that it introduces a vulnerability which would allow attackers to modify the content of the application or inject malicious JavaScript code via cross-site scripting. The exploit was made possible due to improper access controls within the endpoint used within the WordPress plugin's AJAX API, which contained a construct method used for initializing code for new objects. The severity of the security flaw meant that rather than AJAX endpoint being accessible to solely administrators, this allows subscriber-level users to perform actions that would pose a significant risk to the security of the website. Two key methods were responsible for allowing exploitation, namely save underscore content data and autosave underscore constant underscore data, which could be used to inject content, malicious or not, into the website. This meant that an authenticated user, regardless of their privileges, could inject malicious JavaScript code into the website and this would be executed whenever a user visited the policy preview page. The vulnerability has since been fixed in version 1.83, and WordPress users are strongly encouraged to check their website dashboard for plugins, particularly the General Data Protection GDPR compliance plugin, and ensure that it's been updated to the latest version available. So if you do use WordPress for your website, 
and you do use that plugin, please do make sure you've upgraded it to at least version 1.83 so that you protect your website from this vulnerability. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember, keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.